The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. So, welcome to the Buddhist Society of Victoria's Monday Night Guided Meditation, being live-streamed from Newbury Buddhist Monastery. And this is Ajahn Nisarano, uh, the Australian monk who ordained with Ajahn Brahm 23 years ago, and uh, for the last 14 was, years was living in Sri Lanka. So, welcome to tonight. And, as usual, we'll have the uh, introduction to the meditation, We'll do the guided meditation, and then it says here a bell will be rung. And then there's an opportunity for comments, questions, or complaints at the end, and maybe some answers. <laughs> and also, if you want to ask those questions, you can put them in the YouTube live chat column uh, in the YouTube uh, channel. So this uh, this evening we will be uh, uh, looking the theme for this evening will be uh, nothing to do nothing to do interesting <laughs> interesting theme isn't it it's a theme i've been using in my meditation for the last about the last week and it's particularly useful when you're busy <laughs> you may because when we're busy, we're so taken up with so much, we have this idea of got so much to do. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. And I use with this uh, nothing to do mantra, I call it, um, the sometimes can use an image that can help support that feeling of turning the phone off, powering off the phone or any other device, just closing it down. Because that gives us the idea of nothing to do. It gives us a feeling for it. And the purpose of of this uh, meditation, of this uh, theme, is really to train ourselves, to uh, recondition ourselves, so that we develop this habit to stop. <laughs> and uh, when we can stop, this triggers a letting uh, the letting go. That's actually the stopping, and we can just be with whatever. Um, is happening at that moment. We don't have to structure it. We don't have to do this. We don't have to be in the present moment even. We can just be with whatever is happening. So the situation we find ourselves in is that we are all, almost without exception, <laughs> addicted to doing. Uh, when we finish one thing, we think, what's next? What's next? Sometimes it's almost uh, anxiety too. And of course, you know, uh, work, you know, doing is uh, often related to work. We have to do some work. But of course, some people become worker, workaholics, don't they? So it's good to enjoy one's work. But if we become a workaholic, we are probably trying to escape from something, from a problem, from a difficulty in our life. But... This doing business is not only confined to work, it's entertainment. This is pretty uh, serious business, really, <laughs> entertainment. Because we watch vi videos, and you can watch hours and hours of Netflix. You know, I heard of one young uh, man who told me he watched eight hours at uh, one stretch to watch a TV series that he'd missed one a series of, you know, so he was catching up. He said by the end of it, it wasn't that much fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was a comedy. But we also, we listen to music, we read books, we eat food, we exercise the body, we go to the, for walks, or we go to the gym. We keep going and going. 
And of course, it 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 rather does rather bring up the point: Are we trying to distract ourselves by all this doing? And if so, from what? So of course, you know, we're distracting ourselves from our problems. And uh, I always remember Ayakima. Ayakima used to said the favorite one of the favorite escape routes from dukkha. This is suffering, unsatisfactoriness is distraction. The other one she mentions, it's a very popular one too, is the blaming game. You blame someone. Sometimes we blame ourselves. But distraction is a very, uh, very popular one. Desperately looking for happiness outside ourselves. And distracting ourselves from being with ourselves. You know, this is often the case that we're not really comfortable with ourselves. We're not at ease with ourselves. We're not at home with ourselves and we're trying to fill this void inside with doing and with activity and we don't know who we are or what we are and actually I might mention now this is quite a nice one here there's an amazing this is a an amazing saying from 1654 which says it all and it's called I'll ask uh, if people know who it was who said this all of humanity's problems stem, all, all of humanity's problems, stem from man's inability or people's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Isn't that amazing? All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly or person's inability, people's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Does anybody know who said that? It's a famous saying, but... It's a French philosopher, Blaise Pascal, Pascal. And he says, we fear silence of existence. We fear boredom and we fear, uh, we choose aimless distraction. And it helps us to run away from our problems of emotions, of our emotional problems. And there was a very interesting um, uh, study that was done. Ajahn Ramali mentioned this earlier this year about a study they did at a university in um, America where they had a group of students and they asked these students to sit for 10 to 20 minutes in a room to sit. They weren't allowed to get up and walk around or do other things for 10 or 20 minutes and uh, just to sit with themselves to you know, think whatever they wish to think, positive thoughts or whatever. And they showed the, um, they said there was a buzzer there was a button they could press and they asked people to press it and it gave an electric shock. And they said, they asked all the participants, was this pleasant or unpleasant? Uh, Would you pay to avoid this? And they said, we would pay to avoid this. (laughs) And then when they actually had to do their 10 to 20 minutes sitting in a room quietly on their own, without their phones, without anything, any external um, uh, support or distraction, what happened? They found many of the participants pressed the button. Even though they said they'd pay to avoid the pain, they pressed it. Said Interestingly, 70% of men pressed the button <laughs> and 25% of women did it. So that shows you a big difference. So that's quite interesting. It really shows how uncomfortable we are with ourselves. It shows how uncomfortable we are with our thoughts too. So that's... That was something I thought I'd just mention there. But our doing is not confined only to work or to um, our entertainment. It's also to meditation, 
people often uh, want to do the meditation. And uh, this approach, you know, to doing the meditation, people and myself, I remember in the early days, I was very interested in techniques. I thought if we get the right techniques, surely you'll crack it. (laughs) You'll, You'll do it. And, and, you know, then I didn't realize, you know, that it's really our attitude, the mind states, the feelings we're developing that's important. I did notice that a lot of the monks, uh, uh, the talks, the early Buddhist talks I heard were about attitudes. I thought, what's the point? You know, we want to get the right technique. So that's that approach of doing the meditation. And, of course, you know, Ajahn Brahm, he mentions Stop trying to meditate. It's the same idea, isn't it? <laughs> stop trying to meditate because that really uh, inhibits the meditation. It really stops it. And it's really our desire is what's driving it, desire to get something, to achieve something, to control. So this is really what we, uh, you know, is behind this, uh, uh, this approach to meditation of doing the meditation the desire to get something. And, of course, you know, it's partly because many people today, we have this, what they call, bucket list. That word didn't used, <laughs> didn't used to exist, but this sort of list of uh, things that one has to do in life, a bucket list, you know, the, the best things that one wants to do. And so meditation is often on there. And so if you, you can do meditation, you can tick it off. I've done meditation. And then, of course... People are always asking, you know, this is one of the things you see in meditation. If we're asking what next, that shows that the mind is not very peaceful. It shows that there's wanting, desire, operating, and the meditation won't succeed. And interestingly enough, Ajahn Ganha, who's quite a famous monk in northeast Thailand, he, who stayed at Ajahn Brahm's monastery twice, actually, I remember him staying there, at one time, and then uh, they they asked someone asked Ajahn Ganna how he meditates, how he meditates, and his answer was, "I do nothing. I do nothing." But I would say nothing to do is better than I do nothing because, again, people are trying to do nothing. <laughs> it's often the case, actually. How do you do nothing? <laughs> and that's what they think. We try to do it, you know, we try to do this nothing, don't we? So doing is a really strong habit we've created. It's really an addiction that we have. And just to sit and be uh, at ease with ourselves, with uh, whatever's going on, is difficult. But I reflected that in Sri Lanka, I've seen people sitting on their verandas for hours doing nothing. I don't know what they were thinking, but they seemed to be quite happy just sitting there, you know, watching life go by. And uh, But we really, I think in the West, I don't think many people could do that. They couldn't do that. Just to sit on the veranda and watch things and just let them be. So this is, this is something we can uh, reflect on. And it's good to ask ourselves, why is it so difficult to do nothing? Sometimes it can be, you know, that uh, people think too, well, it's lazy, isn't it, if we're doing nothing? (laughs) There can be other reasons for that. But in order for this 
nothing to do, guided meditation to work. We have to see the disadvantage in doing things. And I think especially when we're very busy, we can feel that because you feel a bit overburdened by it. But we also notice with all this doing, whether it's in meditation, whether it's in entertainment or work, it is driven by desire to get something, to achieve something. And with that comes a certain frustration because we don't necessarily get what we want. And we can be, feel disappointed, you know, particularly in meditation. If we have an idea, we want to get something, then we, if we don't get that, then we think, wow, this is a failure, this is not good. But also this uh, doing, uh, we see, drives restlessness and distraction. And in a strange way, too, it promotes boredom, too, because sometimes nothing satisfies, but we feel like we have to do something, you know. And boredom is one of the big things that drives us in, uh, you see it, in in the West particularly. Um, We cannot bear being bored. We have to turn something on, do something, you know, watch something, eat something, anything, really. But it's all not satisfying often when we have that state of mind. But also, all this doing, of course, tires the mind and tires the body as well. When I mention this list, do you recognize the list? I wonder if the people who are listening to this recognize the list. It's the five hindrances plus. (laughs) And this is what doing promotes, actually. And... The way we can um, give up anything, actually, seeing the disadvantage in it, seeing if it's actually benefiting us or not, and to see that all the doing that we can get caught up in is like a habit, but it's like a treadmill too. There's no end to doing, actually. There's no end to doing. And it will... it. Uh, we can look for a way to find rest for the body, and this learning to uh, to turn away from doing, stopping actually, then can stop desire arising for a time, just temporarily stopping, you know, is is something that we can manage. And when we have this, uh, when we hear this uh, mantra, nothing to do, the the mind and the body can relax, and we can be happy thinking nothing to do and it can create quite a pleasant feeling and of course if we use that image you know of powering off a uh, phone or a device that can actually support it too so it can create this pleasant feeling and that's that's very important in meditation to have a pleasant feeling with the meditation and any time during the meditation if you notice the mind wandering off just remind yourself, nothing to do. You don't have to get rid of the thinking. <laughs> just, uh, just let, well, nothing to do. Just If you say, let it be, then it sounds like you're going to do something as well. So we can use that feeling to bring up what it can bring up for us. If we find that pleasant, then we can let go of doing things and just let things be, just be with things. Sometimes people say, is there a difference between uh, letting go, uh, letting be and letting go. And of course, I think letting be seems more passive and it comes from a sense of acceptance of the present moment as it is. But letting go is a bit more active because it triggers, I think it triggers letting be. 
it triggers it. The mind letting go of something when it understands the reality, then you can just be with that reality. You don't have to change it, improve it, add to it. And uh, so a very good analogy for that that uh, someone from the Buddhist society mentioned to me, Sri Juth, uh, was letting go. Uh, even one teacher said is like unclenching the hand when it's face down letting go and there's a fear because when you open the hand and it's face down something will drop and there's an insecurity that goes with that and of course this is in meditation it can be this fear of uh, losing our sense of our sense of ourself being threatened so but in this example in the simile letting be is like uh, an unclenched hand facing upwards and it allows whatever's on the palm to go in its own good time. Isn't that nice? To go in its own good time. And uh, this letting be, well, we need a bit of letting go and letting be with our children too when we're raising children and allow them to grow uh, the way their character is and, and, and try and uh, help them, support them. And... Also, what can help us develop this uh, feeling of the nothing to do is reflecting on what we are free from. So we can just think of the things we're free from. These things are like a burden. We're free from work. We're free from work. We're free free from shopping. Some people like shopping, actually, even if the, we had a Boxing Day sales just recently. And, you know, free from cleaning the, all the chores, uh, and anything that we, we we get caught up in, we can be free from it. And so this, this can be a very good way to um, intensify the feeling of nothing to do. Some people may find this idea, this mantra, nothing to do, might frighten them, or they might get bored, they think, because uh, we say nature abhors a vacuum. <laughs> And people's minds do too. So we try and fill, as I mentioned before, fill that vacuum with anything really. It can be pleasant or unpleasant, as I mentioned. These uh, electric shocks that the students were quite willingly undertaking because there was nothing to do. So it's this is... Um, if we have an unpleasant feeling, you know, arise when we hear nothing to do, then we can just ask ourselves, why is this? And not have a judgment, just to investigate it. And usually we'll find it challenges our sense of self. Uh, we, we feel we are the doer, you know, and if we stop doing, who am I? <laughs> so it's uh, very important. So the benefits, too, of... Uh, Nothing to do guided meditation is that it's an antidote for stress. As I mentioned, you know, when you're very busy, I've been very busy recently, so it's been good uh, that, that it's uh, come up for me at this time, perhaps because of that. If you live a busy life, this could be a very useful meditation for you. Nothing to do. And uh, the reason it can be because it's an antidote to stress. And I've found, and I think this is very true with most people, they, we get stressed because we think, too much to do, too much to do. There's not enough time. There's either three reasons, actually. It's either there's too much to do, we feel overwhelmed by what we have to do. There's not enough time to do it, or I can't do it. I feel like I can't do this. 
And then when I have this, these feelings, particularly too much to do, it becomes a mantra. We just keep running it. And we get stressed by the mantra, actually. And I, when, when that happens, I make a list. I make a list of what I've got to do. And I think, wow, that's not that much. <laughs> and then then can relax. You can see the mind let go. Because what it's really been stressed by is not what we have to do, but just this mantra. There's too much to do. So this is a very useful way of using this uh, nothing to do uh, mantra. Instead of too much to do, or not enough time, or I can't do this. So it's also very useful, this nothing to do in daily life, because there are lots of moments in our lives when we can use it, when we're not doing much, so we can just really, you know, do nothing, because we've got nothing to do. We can just be with whatever we're doing, whether we're on the bus or on the train, at the, in the sur- doctor's surgery, waiting to see the doctor, wherever. So we can just be with ourselves in the present moment, but we don't have to do the present moment. <laughs> just let the present moment be as it is. So this is the um, the introduction for the nothing to do guided meditation. So let's see if we can actually do nothing, or uh, we can be with nothing to do rather than do it, do nothing. So we can start. And this will be about uh, uh, 45 minutes um, meditation. Most of it is guided, guided meditation. But uh, 45 minutes, and then we can follow that with comments, questions, and complaints. So please find a comfortable posture for the meditation. Whether it's sitting on a seat, a chair, sitting on a cushion, meditation cushion, or however you wish. To meditate, as long as it's a posture that has a little has energy in it, is comfortable, uh, and we can maintain for this meditation. And so we can come into the present and uh, let go, or leave the past in the past, leave the future in the future. One of the sayings I like: the past is history, and the future is a mystery. So we can just let it be coming here into the present moment, just however it is. And we can check up on the body to see how comfortable it is, to see if the back is um, straight, not rigid, that the head is uh, feeling comfortable, balanced over the shoulders, and the shoulders balanced over the hips. can move the shoulders a little, or just to uh, bring some relaxation to any uh, tension in the shoulders. Seeing what the body needs at this moment, being in touch with the body, listening to the body.
And now we can relax the body mentally. Starting at the top of the head and taking in the back of the head and the sides of the head. And soothing it, relaxing it, giving it this kind attention. Allowing any tension in the top of the head, back of the head, side of the head to relax, soothing it. And bringing to mind the forehead and relaxing the forehead, soothing it, giving it a mental massage. And around the eyes, the cheeks of the face, and around the mouth and chin. Allowing them to relax, to be at ease. And bringing to mind the neck and moving our attention around the neck. Giving it this warm, gentle, mental massage. Now bringing to mind the right shoulder, starting at the neck, and we can move our attention along the right shoulder, soothing any tension, any stiffness, relaxing it, giving it this kind attention. Now bringing to mind the right arm, starting at the top of the right arm and moving our attention down the right arm to include the uh, elbow, the wrist, the hands and fingers, soothing them with a gentle mental massage.
Now we can bring to mind the left shoulder, starting at the neck and moving our attention slowly along the left shoulder, soothing it, uh, soothing any painful areas, tense areas, relaxing them with this kind mental massage. The left arm, starting at the top of the left arm and moving our attention down the left arm to include the elbow, the wrist, the left hand and fingers, soothing them, relaxing them with this kind, warm attention. Now bringing to mind the back, just below the shoulders, and moving our attention down the back, soothing any sore or painful areas, relaxing and soothing the back with this kind, gentle attention. Now bringing to mind the front of the body, starting just below the shoulders and moving our attention down the front of the body to include the chest, the diaphragm area, the stomach and the abdomen below the stomach. Soothing them, noticing any tight areas, hard areas, painful areas and soothing them with this warm relaxing attention. 
And now we can bring to mind the right leg, starting at the top of the right leg and moving our attention slowly down the right leg, all around it, to include the knee, the ankle, foot and toes. And starting at the top of the right leg, soothing it, giving it this mental massage. And now we can bring to mind the left leg, starting at the top of the left leg and moving our attention down the left leg all around it to include the knee, the ankle, foot and toes, soothing the left leg, giving it this mental massage. And now we can bring to mind the whole body here, the experience of the whole body just sitting however we find, whether on a chair or a cushion, however it is, aware of the whole body sitting here in the present moment.
and we can bring to mind our intention for this meditation to allow, to allow letting go to happen so that we can let things be, just be with things as they are, ourself, whatever is happening in the present moment. In order to do this, we can just bring to mind the phrase, nothing to do, nothing to do. For the time of this meditation, there's nothing to do. And we can imagine turning off our phones or any other devices, just seeing them power off, remembering there's nothing to do. We're just disconnecting for this time of the meditation. And we can get in touch with the feeling that that phrase, nothing to do, may bring up for us. Or the feeling, that image of turning off the phone, turning off the device brings up. You can just be aware of the present moment, however it is. We don't need to uh, rearrange it or improve on it. Just have this feeling of nothing to do with whatever we're experiencing in the meditation. We're not getting involved with whatever is occurring. There's nothing, we don't have to do anything with it. We don't have to fix it or change it. Just allowing things to be as they are. And if our minds drift off during the meditation, just to remember, nothing to do. I'm doing something. Or we can even think, absolutely nothing to do and to remember or to remember the image of turning off the phone or the device and very important remembering the feeling that comes off comes up when we have nothing to do feeling of freedom of ease of space
And uh, now we can remember that feeling of nothing to do. And we can share it with everyone listening to this guided meditation this evening, wherever they are throughout the world. All the meditators listening to this now. This feeling of nothing to do. Sharing it. And we can share this feeling of nothing to do with all those around wherever we find ourselves, whether they be human beings, animals, insects, with all those around us. And we can share this feeling in ever-widening circles, further and further, to include the whole planet and all realms of existence. This feeling of nothing to do, this freedom, this ease, this relaxation. And now we can develop the aspiration or the intention to remember when it is the appropriate time. Nothing to do. Nothing to do. And get in contact with that feeling. And just be. When we have those opportunities, when we meditate, other times during the day, when we're not doing things, Nothing to do. Just remember that. And now we can review how we feel now after this uh, meditation, the guided meditation. How do we feel? And how did we feel when we thought nothing? to do, or we imagined, visualized, turning off the phone, seeing the phone power off, or the device power off. And did we find 
that letting go happened. We use this phrase, the feeling accompanying this phrase, or the image, and that we were able to just let things be. And lastly, what did we learn from our experience? What did we learn? So please slowly come out of meditation if you wish to and to move your body to make it more comfortable. And so uh, now we have some uh, questions uh, so we can deal with those. I'd just like to mention about that experiment uh, that uh, I, I mentioned with the university students. And uh, one of the interesting things was they found that it wasn't... They thought, well, maybe it's only young people <laughs> who are used to mobile phones, who are used to Facebook and all these things. So they tried it with an older generation, and they, they didn't have the uh, electric shock button, but they, they allowed them to do it at home, and they found that they just couldn't do it either. <laughs> and they, they were often cheating. So it's not, uh, it's not just age-related. Um, so that was quite an interesting thing. And the other thing that was interesting that I read about that study was they asked people if you'd had any meditation experience, these young people. Some of them had, but they found very little correlation between their ability to just sit there quietly and having had meditation experience. But the um, the, the uh, scientists who were doing this experiment, social scientists, said that it may be different if the people were experienced meditators because they don't know how much experience these people had. They might have just meditated once in their life. So that's interesting too, because you would think, wouldn't you, that uh, if you had more meditation experience, you could be with yourself much more easily uh, in that situation and probably not shock yourself. <laughs> So anyway, now I'll pass over to Ken, who's going to ask the uh, questions for this evening. Some of the questions. Thank you, Ajahn, for the wonderful guided meditation. We've got a couple of questions. Um, the first question is, I've heard it said that enlightenment is an accident. Is this true? Ah, is enlightenment an accident? Is this true? That's a good, good question. Well... No, enlightenment uh, is not quite an accident because there are there are causes and conditions for it, aren't there? You know, when you think about it, the causes and conditions that I think of anyway is that the mind needs to be um, totally pure of uh, desire, aversion and delusion. 
And also the mind needs to um, have developed the wisdom, the insight uh, into the nature of reality and seeing, you know, that yeah, everything is impermanent, uncertain, uh, unreliable and that because of that there isn't a permanent happiness that one can um, find anywhere, any place. And also um, that there isn't a permanent me here. And so when a person has those insights which lead to an understanding of the Four Noble Truths as well, as part of unsatisfactoriness, then enlightenment is possible. So in a sense there are causes, but of course um, it is. It happens when the causes are fulfilled, and uh, so we can't quite predict that. And you see in the verses of the enlightened uh, monks and nuns, sometimes it happens in the most uh, unusual places. So one monk, for instance, was uh, uh, um, going into the village. I think for arms round, probably you know, collecting the food in in the morning. And uh, there was in the in the town that he was going through, there was a dancing girl who was singing and dancing and people were out on the street, live entertainment. And, and they were, uh, you know, everybody was enjoying it. And he saw it, saw this woman. He was very attracted. And then it says in his verses, he saw the danger in the sensual, in this sensual desire, this desire how to take him through countless rebirths and he could see the danger in it and then his mind just uh, released and he was uh, became enlightened just at that time and we hear of other occasions where monks and nuns became enlightened the most unusual times you know like one person that happened to a monk and a nun actually i think it was uh, perhaps more common than we think they were unable to get uh, what we call uh, samadhi, one-pointedness of mind. Sometimes people call it concentration. <laughs> Adam Brahm wouldn't like that. Um, and uh, because of that, they decided they would commit suicide. They would hang themselves. And they'd uh, put the rope up, ready to hang themselves. And just at that moment, they became enlightened. You know, So the causes and conditions are there, but we don't quite know when it will happen, when they will be fulfilled. But it is very important to see that it's not a personal thing. It happens when our minds understand things at a very deep level. It's not at an intellectual level. It's at experiential level. And as we call it direct, um, direct insight or direct knowledge. They sometimes call it abhinya. So, yes. So thank you for that. I hope that answered the question. Is it an accident or not? <laughs> thank you, Arjan. Um, we've got one question from the audience and then um, I'll continue with online questions next. All right, yes. Ah, very good. Thank you, Arjun, for the meditation. Um, would you consider practicing meta meditation as doing something? Ah, right, right. Is practicing meta meditation doing something? Well, you could say could say that it is doing something you know but it's creating really it's uh, whatever we do is just to create the feeling of metta uh, to bring that up you know so that once that arises you know that that is you've we have arrived actually in a sense because we had that feeling within ourselves and then the natural consequence of 
uh, feeling meta within ourselves is is to really to share it with other people actually to share it with other beings not only people you know the animals and uh, insects and all all beings so in a sense it's interesting i was going to talk about in the guided meditation the buddha talks about two types of meditation and he talks about directed meditation and undirected meditation and I think something like meta meditation, um, you know, a meditation with an object, this is directed. We are using the mind in a directed sense. But, you know, I, I would think of undirected meditation as being when we are not um, using an object, we are not doing something, we're just being with whatever and using that experience as a basis for peace uh, you know, for the peace of stillness and also for the basis for wisdom to arise as well. So often you see in vipassana meditation techniques, they have more this approach that you're just open to what you're experiencing. And uh, for instance, in shittanapassana, you're watching just the reactions of the mind to things, you know, li- basically liking and disliking <laughs> going on. So I think there's it's not like there's only one type of meditation and certainly, you know, I would say uh, meta meditation is directed because we are aiming, we are directing the mind towards developing meta. And um, our success will depend on if we can trigger that feeling and however we can do that. And as I mentioned um, yesterday, that's right, yesterday, about meta meditation, we can use words. Some people use words, may you be happy and well. There can be many words, actually. As long as they bring up the feeling, where we can use images. And one of the uh, ones that uh, I like, that Iakema uh, used, was flower garden in the heart. So you envisage these, uh, imagine these, uh, this flower garden with beautiful flowers, beautiful scents, beautiful colours, everything. And you're picking these flowers, giving them to yourselves, and then giving it to other other people. And so you can use images to bring up uh, meta. And the other thing that I like very much, I use mainly actually, are concepts. So the concept like of being a best friend, if we think about that, we can get in touch with a feeling that we have for what a best friend is, what it means. And then when we get that feeling, we can give it to ourselves, we can be our own best friend, and then we can start spreading it. We don't have to spread it to individuals. We can spread it to just group, to uh, as I did uh, in the meditation then, just geographically even. But we can also bring people to mind. And uh, it can be very, very powerful, If particularly if metta has got some samadhi behind it. The mind is very one-pointed and powerful. So that can be a very good way. So that's a concept, uh, best friend. And the Buddha used the concept of um, a mother's love for her only child. And that can work for some people, depending on your mother. <laughs> but you don't have to, it doesn't have to be a mother, it can be your father. It doesn't have to be mother or father, it can be auntie or uncle or grand, grandmother. Whoever it is that has, you know, raise, arouses, that's the word, arouses that feeling of meta in us. So there are three ways we can do it. There are probably more ways to, so from words, images, or from concepts. So that's it. But it is directed because we are, you know, aiming to uh, bring up this feeling of meta-loving kindness or friendliness I like. 
So thank you for that, Liv. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, so, Arjun. Any other questions? Uh, we've got three more questions and All right. um, about ten, 10 minutes left. 10 minutes, so, yeah, that's good. Uh, the next question is, I have a problem when to stop meditation. Wow. I feel conflicted, conflicted when I stop meditation because I want to do something or I don't because I should not stop to do something. What is your experience? Wow. Gee, that's interesting, isn't it? It, I think when we are conflicted, maybe we are thinking quite a bit at that stage. Could be, could be, could be thinking at that stage. I, I tend to find from my own experience, I just know when I think the meditation has finished. And how do I know the meditation has finished? Because the mind is moving away from, you know, peacefulness, maybe moving away from the object, uh, the body's uncomfortable. These things are all signs. So I think we have to be sensitive to it and also not have an ideal of how long we should meditate for. Uh, you know, people do and they set, you know, times for themselves and then they say, no, I'm not going to get up for two hours, <laughs> whatever it is. And so this can cause a bit of a conflict. Uh, so one of the things you could ask yourself is, why do I feel conflicted? You know, ask yourself and just find out why that is. Is it, There's obviously some expectation there, you know, that um, you know, I should meditate for much, much longer or, you know, and the conflict can be, I want to stop now. <laughs> so just be in touch with, you know, how you're, without a lot of this thinking, with how you're feeling and just see are the conditions for the meditation to continue there or not and then break the meditation. But certainly if we're having conflict, it's a, it means we've got some agenda running, some some idea that uh, we should, it should be like this and not like that. So that's good. Good to have a look at. Expectation, that's the word. So thank you for that one. Yes. Thank you, Ajahn. The next question is, what is meant by becoming Dhamma? What oh. is meant by transcending the Dhamma? Right. What's meant by becoming Dhamma? What's meant by transcending Dhamma? When I would say that um, when we becoming Dhamma is, of course, you know, becoming enlightened, becoming in tune with uh, um, everything. You know, this this is awakening, so that we are no longer separated from the you know the reality that we're surrounded by we've given up the idea of uh, um, the well it's not we haven't given it up it's just been uh, removed or seen through the idea of a permanent me a permanent self um, and uh, also uh, looking for happiness in the world and and uh, realizing that things that are impermanent changing unreliable uncertain so we become Dhamma when we, when that is our reality, when we, when, when we know the Four Noble Truths, not from theory, but from experience. We're seeing it around us. And in actual fact, that is great happiness. <laughs> it's not, not a sad thing at all, great happiness. And then to transcend Dhamma, I thought about that, and I think maybe we could say transcending Dhamma is experiencing Nibbāna. When, when we awaken... 
when people awaken, become enlightened, that's in this life. Um, and then when they transcend Dhamma in a sense, the worldly Dhamma, the Dhamma of existence, um, then they experience Nibbana. And so that's, that could be called transcending Dhamma. But there's a book called um, Being Dhamma, I think, by uh, about some of Ajahn Chah's teaching, Being Dhamma. And he uses that concept too. So, so thank you for that, Ken. I hope that answered it. Thank you, Ajahn. The last question for tonight mm. is, Venerable, just now in the guided meditation, I found pain on my sitting bones, which I can't able to take any longer, so I moved my sitting. Please advise what I should do. Thanks. Right. I think you did the right thing. <laughs> you did the right thing. Because, you know, I think sometimes it's in interesting to explore the feelings, painful feelings, and we can just see uh, see the nature of them, see that they come and they go, that we tend to really get concerned about them. We do. Um, but, you know, if they're becoming uh, so pressing uh, that they are going to, you know, derail the meditation, you know, then fine to move. We, we usually say move mindfully, slowly, uh, and change the posture. Because meditation is not about torturing ourselves. This is what the, the, the Buddha discovered, you know, that uh, um, these painful uh, spiritual, they're supposed to be spiritual practices of, you know, starving the body and, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, sit standing, standing on one leg, or doing all sorts of sitting in the sun, um, uh, even though it's boiling hot and all that sort of thing. Uh, he found that that didn't lead to enlightenment. That was an extreme. Indulging in the body is another extreme, but that's a tormenting or a torturing the body is another extreme. So no need to torture the body if it's an interesting thing to explore you know, pain, and sometimes when the mind is very stable, it's possible to explore pain. But there has to be no aversion in the mind to it, because if there's aversion, then there's nothing, one won't develop much wisdom or insight from it. So it must come from that base, yeah. So fine to move, fine to move. I think that's the wise thing to do. Mm. So thank you for those questions, and I think we can finish the evening here. We'll finish off. Uh, with the Arahang. So those who'd like to join, who know it, 